hello, and welcome to The Ties That Find, the podcast where we learn about cases being solved by forensic genealogy, an investigative tool that law enforcement has been using to find killers and other violent offenders, as well as identify recovered John and Jane Doe's. I'm your host, Rachel, and I'm so excited to start this project and bring you, the listeners, stories of resolution, closure, and justice. So the first thing I want to do in this inaugural episode is to give an overview of exactly what forensic genealogy is, because it is a new tool that law enforcement is using to solve really old cases, really cold cases in regards to actual crimes that are committed, or just people that have been, um, you know, remains that have been discovered and no one's able to put a name to. So we know what DNA is, and we know what genealogy is. Of course, genealogy being the research that we do in order to broaden our family tree and possibly even find people that we're related to that we didn't know it. Um, But what they do is when we marry these two together, you're seeing people that aren't just married to you by marriage, but or by possibly adoption, um, or, you know, the taking in of someone to, to raise as their own child. But we're actually going into the science of it to link people who are who are related by blood. So what we've seen in the last few years is a lot of companies are actually providing this service to get your DNA tested. You can spit in a tube, I I don't know, maybe, you know, do a swab inside your cheek or something, send it to a a private company and they will do do an analysis on your DNA, create a report, keep it in their system and send it to you also, and then match it up. If they have other people in your, in your, in their database, that have similar DNA profiles to yours, then they would, you know, show you that hit. Now, these are companies like AncestryDNA.com and 23andMe.com. The limited, the limitations though with these companies is that they're only able to provide you with hits for people that are also in their database. So if you're looking for, say, a cousin where you were told that you're aunt had a baby before she before her first marriage and she gave that baby up for adoption if you're looking for that cousin you're not necessarily going to find that cousin if that cousin puts their dna on 23andme but you're uploading your information to ancestry.com so there is a database called gedmatch and i believe there's a few other databases out there that actually just take those dna reports and they they take them from people who've gotten their DNA analyzed through other companies, other, the private companies, and they collect them. So you do have, as a person who's trying to find this, um, you know, long lost relative or just expand and verify the, you know, the family tree that they already have, we need to actually take our information and put it on a site like GEDmatch. And then GEDmatch will compare our profiles to other people in their system. So it is something that you need to do proactively. And it's a, it's a great, tool because you have this database now that of, of so many more people that are possibly related to you by blood, and you're not just limited to the company that you submitted your DNA to. And we keep in mind that the way GenMatch works its database is you actually are given a profile um, ID number of some sorts. So you don't even have like your name up on the site. And when you get hits back to your family tree, where other people have uploaded their information, you're not getting a name necessarily. You're probably just getting a hit where it says this person hit, you know, has a certain number of or certain characteristics of their DNA that match yours. It isn't necessarily a username or an email address that you're getting. I'm honestly not sure, but I will get there one day and you'll be there with me to find out. Um, but my understanding is that 
even though that there, that other person's information is out there for GEDmatch to find for you, you still need to take an extra step once you discover them and you want to reach out to them. I believe you do message them through the website and then they decide. And then at a certain point, you can exchange personal information to contact each other outside the site. However, when it comes to cold cases where, say, we have someone that was you know, found to be murdered in 1982, and we don't know anything about the suspect except we have the DNA. We don't have actual name or any kind of leads. And now it's a cold case. And clearly, people who are perpetrating these violent crimes, these, you know, violent assaults, these rapes, these murders, they're not advertising their DNA profiles in order for law enforcement to match them in sites like GenMatch. So at this point, law enforcement is relying on people, the general public, to opt in um, to allow their DNA profile to be accessed or at least compared to their suspect's DNA in sites like GEDmatch. And that is the ultimate goal here of this podcast is to bring awareness of this new investigative tool and how we, you know, the regular, you know, John and Jane citizen can actually, you know, help bring closure, closure for the families of these victims closure for in the legal sense, you know, for these perpetrators to be, you know, tried and and convicted and, and serve their time if they are the ones that actually did commit the crime. Um, of course, it's not just the family tree that convicts a person, it is other circumstances and other evidence that is found, and other other details that are fleshed out. I think that if there's a bigger database, there's going to be bigger, you know, m- more and more c- cases that have been solved and and also, you know, the missing people or the recovered bodies that are identified so we can bring closure to these families and we can get justice. So today we're going to talk about Helene Przinsky. She was born in, on April 5th in 1958, and she was the youngest of three kids. Uh, their parents were Chester and Henrietta. Chester was born in New York City, and mom was born in, uh, mom Henrietta was born in Brooklyn, New York. And then eventually they got, they grew up, they, they met, they got married, and they lived in Long Island and got, and had their three kids. So the oldest is Chester. He, um, he was the oldest brother. Then we have older sister Janet, and then we have Helene. Now, um, at some, at a certain point, they did leave Long Island and they moved to, um, a, a little town called Hamilton in Massachusetts. And when Helene was, um, a senior in high school, she, uh, sorry, throughout her high school, when she was in high school, she was a singer with a high school choir called Harmony. And she was also part of the drama club. One of her friends, um, in high school, her name was Kimberly Abremsky, which we'll, we'll hear from her later. And, um, she, Helene also actually dated Kimberly's brother, John. It was a high school, you know, romance. They did break up after graduation. At a certain point, Helene did an interview with a friend. This might have been in high school or in college, but the friend was in broadcasting and, and she did, um, you know, she did like a little interview and she, this is what she says about life. And I think this is just so beautiful. She says, quote, my philosophy on life, I have one. You should just be yourself and make the best of everything. Smile. Smile. That's what I do all the time. Unquote. I just think it's such a beautiful way to live your life is to always just try to make the best of everything that you have in front of you, right? We have a lot of things that can get us down. We don't always have the easiest road, but if you just try to keep your chin up and smile, you know, even if, you know, sometimes you got to fake it till you make it, right? I think it's such a wonderful outlook to have. So, Helene graduates from high school and she ends up going to college, um, just about an hour commute 
from home and she goes to Wheaton College. Now, you know, we don't know if she commuted there, or if she, you know, lived on campus, because, um, you know, I'm not sure what the, you know, what the commute might have been like back then, but I just, I Googled, you know, I did a map quest on it for, for, for the commute nowadays, and it would be about an hour. During her senior year, she's, she's going to school for journalism, and she actually gets an internship at a radio station where her aunt lives out in Colorado. So between the fall semester and the spring semester, her and her friend, uh, Kitsy, Kitsy Snow was her friend who also got a, uh, an internship. They both move out there to the aunt's house, Wanda Blixt in Colorado. It's, um, they're in a suburb called Englewood, which is just outside of Denver. Now, Helene starts this, this internship actually on New Year's Day in 1980. She works at K How. It's a radio station in downtown Denver, and she's just going to be an intern there and she's going to learn the ropes, so to speak. You know, this is really a great way for us to see, you know, what Helene was like. Aside from her positive attitude and her bright smile that everyone said she had, she was also very ambitious. She wasn't just there just to have a good time and just to fool around and joke around or whatever. She was very, you know, ambitious. She wanted to get in this internship before she even graduated from college. So she's already working in the industry that she wants to be in. And that really just shows you that her drive to make something for herself and, you know, with a journalism program that she was in, I really think that she could have done a lot of great things. Now, within two weeks of being that intern, she actually did get a big assignment from her boss, Mike Anthony, and um, he was really proud of her. She had actually covered the killing of a Secret Service agent. It was Monday on January 14th of 1980. Helene works on Wednesday, Wednesday, um, you know, Wednesday, January 16th, and she just works a regular day at KHOW, and she's, um, she actually meets this man named um, Bob Scott, who, um, who he actually works for the the local county sheriff's department, but somehow I guess he just got a job as a part you know a part time gig over at the radio station, and she meets him, and they have a nice they have a nice chat um, during this during the workday, and then she leaves work and gets on the bus because she's what she does is she's taking a bus from work to back to her, her aunt's house, and it's about a six mile ride, and she usually gets on the bus around five thirty, maybe be home by like six or six thirty or so because she's got a few extra blocks to walk once she gets off the bus by by her aunt's house. But unfortunately, on this night, she just she doesn't make it home. Later on, we're going to find out that there are three people that are on that bus that say that she was on the bus, but they didn't have any they didn't see any problems. They didn't see her acting weird. She didn't have any trouble with anyone on the bus. But she but they do say, yeah, she just got off the bus around, you know, maybe six, six thirty, wherever it was. That's the bus stop by her aunt's house. But she's still not, she's not home, right? So her aunt Wanda is getting, you know, more and more worried as time goes on throughout the night. And by 1030, they just decide, listen, we're going to call the police and we're going to file a missing persons report. And her friend Kitsy, like I mentioned, Kitsy Snows, who came out there with her from the East Coast for the internship, she was a journal writer. I think it was really interesting because we also, we get to see, you know, some of what had happened that night, like pretty much like as soon as it's happening. And one of the journal entries that she writes that night, Kitsy says, quote, this has been the longest and worst day of my life. I am writing because I don't know what else to do. We waited for Helene to come and waited. And now it's 11 p.m. and no Helene, no call, nothing. I could just imagine if you just so worried about why, where could this person be? This is not like nowadays where we have our phones and we text each other or 
you know a person, and if a person is not showing up when they expected to show up, and you have no way to get in touch with them because it's 1980, then what are you to do? You just sit around and you wait and you hope for the best? Well, at 1030, this family decides that they're calling the cops. So at a certain point, they also have to call Helene's parents. They do end up calling the parents. I think it might have been for 4 a.m. Massachusetts time because, of course, her parents are all upset and they're really worried. And so they're going to rush to get on a plane and they're going to end up being scheduled to arrive in Denver the next day, Thursday at two o'clock in the afternoon. So the next day is Thursday and it's actually like nine o'clock in the morning and a lady and her 13 year old son are just driving by and it's in Englewood where, where Helene lives. They look out the window while they're driving by and they see that there's a body out in the field. So the, the mom and, the, and, and her son, they stop the car and they flag down another, another person driving on the road and they say, hey, listen, look, I think there's a body out there. Now, this is about 10 miles from the bus stop where Helene was. And so they call the police and the police come out and this is what they find. They find a woman. They don't know who it is right now. They don't know who it is yet, but they have found a woman with her hands tied behind her back and she's naked from the waist down. And she's been stabbed multiple times and she's been raped and she's been sodomized. And the Douglas County coroner, John Andrews, he's there and they are able to collect semen evidence from her coat and from her body. And she's identified at the scene by that coworker that she just met the day before. His name was Bob Scott. So he had just met her the day before. So when he shows up, because now he's he does work as a deputy for the sheriff's department. So now he's on the job for the sheriff's department, not the radio station. And he says, I I know that girl. I just met her yesterday at KHOW. So they identify her that way. And then the coroner, he also notes that Helene has dirt and scratch marks on her knees. And this indicates that, you know, she had been kneeling or crawling at some point while her knees were bare. Um, he didn't find any defensive wounds on her. This is all like 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And they don't know this over at, at Helene's aunt's house. Kitsy doesn't know this. Aunt Wanda doesn't know this. But they do see a news report around noon for the local news that say that there was a body that was found out on the ranch land, um, you know, just outside of town. And so they're very, very worried. And they're afraid that that's who it is. And unfortunately, you know, the police do come to the house at about 1.30 in the afternoon and they do tell the family that they had found Helene and her parents had arrived at four o'clock in the afternoon. They had to wait for the parents to show up. But by there, the priest is already there waiting for the parents to come, you know, from the airport. And Kitsy again writes in her journal, quote, Mrs. Przinsky cried and said, no, no, not my baby. When I looked at Mr. Przinsky, I ached more than I ever thought possible. Unquote. <sighs> it's just so horrible, horrible. It's just this random act of violence. We don't know anything about who did it, who would have done it, why. You know, there's just this young girl coming out. Just you know, she's only been there for two weeks, and now she's just attacked outside the outside the bus stop. That's the only thing I could think. They don't know who would have done it or why. They do see tire tracks and um, two sets of footprints leaving away from the car. And of course, only one pair of, you know, set of footprints coming back. They identify them as cowboy boots, but they got nothing else to go on. Then they do get, because of the local news report, they do get a witness that comes forward and her name is Catherine Fries. And she tells police that she actually did see a guy and a car last night 
in that area around 10, 20, 10, 30. And she was actually able to get a pretty good physical description to them. And they made a composite sketch, which actually turns out to be a really close, um, a really close likeness of what this guy turns out to be, who this guy turns out to be. She gives a physical description of the car too. Um, and I believe it, I believe they actually do have license plate number two for that car. So the local police, of course, are still trying to find, you know, anything that can happen, anything that can bring them close to, to, you know, solving this case, but they, they don't have anything. Later on, Janet will tell us in the sentencing hearing for her murderer that her brother had mourned inwardly. He just kind of kept it to himself in his mourning and his grief. And she, Janet, was always worried about her parents and how they were doing. Because at this point, Janet is living in Connecticut. Um, she's married. She's got, she's got at least one child. And then her parents are in Massachusetts. And then brother Chester is actually living in New Jersey. Janet says, quote, our world was shattered when we received that phone call 40 years ago. It was as if someone had reached in and torn our hearts out, unquote. And then John, the ex-boyfriend from high school, he tells Dateline, quote, she was my first love. So she had a very special place in my heart, unquote. And unfortunately, the case is cold. Nobody knows what happened. Nobody knows why. Nobody has any leads. They don't, they don't know what, you know, there's only so much they can do. Remember, DNA is not what it, what it is now. They're able to extract the DNA and save, of course, they're saving all the, all the evidence. They're saving the clothing. They're saving any kind of, you know, trash or type of, you know, drunk that they see maybe in the field or next to the road. But there's only so much that they can do with that at that time and back in the, you know, the early 80s. And so the case is cold. Of course, we have Henry Lucas and Otis Toole. They confess to her murder, but they confess every murder that, you know, they're asked about. Henry Lucas also said that he had shot her, but she wasn't shot. She was actually stabbed to death. They're also ruled out by DNA analysis that they were able to do back then. In the early 90s, Helene's parents actually do move to Florida. They leave uh, Massachusetts and go to Florida. And a few years later, in 1994, they police think they might actually have a suspect. His name is Kenyon Tollerton, and he's a serial rapist, apparently raping and killing multiple people, we think, or at least two that we, we know about, we've come to find out, since the early 80s. He's picked up in the spring of 1994, and he's being held in question for the rape and murder of a 14-year-old in September of 93. So this actually was a girl who had also been found in a remote area outside of Denver, just like Colleen was. And he had been in the Denver area back in the 80s. Uh, at some point in 1980, he actually was sentenced and served time in jail for the rape and murder of Donna Waugh. And she was also from Englewood. We have this guy, Kenyon Tollerton, who's in the area. And um, he's even in the area up until, you know, 1994, committing, you know, horrible, horrible crimes against women. For the 1993 rape and murder of the 14-year-old, he actually is, he does plead guilty. He's sentenced to life without parole, including an additional 48 years. Always love to tack on some extra years, right? So they have Kenyon's DNA. And so they say, well, we can take it from him now for this for this crime here that we have for this girl because CODIS is coming around now just just before Y2K. They're putting all these convic convicted and, and charged, um, you know, violent offenders in the database. That's what they're trying to do to try to solve Helene's case. But unfortunately, there's no hits. 
So in 2006, Helene's childhood friend or high school friend, Kim, she actually sets up a website to try to get publicity to solve Helene's murder. And she's hoping even that possibly the killer might even just decide to like, you know, search for any kind of items in the news or on the web about Helene. Some of these offenders, they do do that. There's nothing that comes of it when it comes to, you know, trying to get this guy by his IP address. And there's no tips or anything that come forward either for for anyone that's looking into the case on Kim's website. And then unfortunately, in 2009, Helene's brother does pass. So 2009, now we're at 30, uh, sorry, 29 years since Helene was murdered. Her brother passes. In 2012, mom dies in June, in July, and then dad dies just two months later in September. They're down in Florida, remember? They had moved to, into Florida about 20 years earlier. So now it's really just Janet. Um, there might be some extended family, but Janet's the only one left in her immediate family. She's still hoping for answers. You know, she's married. She's She's got her own kids, and she's she can tell them about the wonderful Aunt Helene that they, that they would have been able to met or sh- should have been able to have to grow up with. So in 2013, the case is now reviewed and worked again by new detectives and agents. And they actually do try to use the suspect DNA to identify family members of that suspect. But this is not as fine-tuned as it is um, nowadays. Even 2013, it was it was a great tool to start off with, but it wasn't necessarily, in this case, this wasn't something that that came to any leads. I believe that they only actually were able to get any hits for people in Colorado. So it might have been like a Colorado database. And in 2017, we have Detective Jason Serbo. He's with the Douglas County Sheriff's Department. And he contacts Parabon. Parabon is the lab that does DNA analysis. And they also do have forensic researchers that, you know, will go through family trees to try to pinpoint unknown people. He sends the DNA to Parabon and they say, sure, we'll take a look at it. But then they say, well, listen, it, it's not a big enough sample. You have to get something more for me. I need something more. We need to pull a a fresh new DNA report. A few months later in 2018, he sends a swatch of Helene's coat from back in 1980. Amazing to me. Always save the evidence, right? Never get rid of evidence. (laughs) So he gets a a fresh swatch of the coat and he sends it off to Parabon in Virginia. So now we're in early 2019 and Detective Serbo is actually working with Detective Shannon Jensen. I'm going to just read you something from her affidavit for the arrest of this guy. So this helps us just kind of a little more closely understand how the DNA and the forensics works. Okay. This is, and this is a direct quote from her, the arrest affidavit for the suspect quote, based on my conversations with genealogist, Joan Hanlon, a centimorgan is a unit of measure for DNA. One's total shared centimorgans tells them how much DNA they share with another match. In general, the more DNA one shares with a match, the higher the centimorgan number will be and the more closely related the two people are, unquote. We're going to see in this case, part of the arrest record, the arrest warrant actually does include all this research that, that Jensen and the, you know, the, the genealogist did to try to find this guy. And it's really fascinating and it's really hard to understand. I, I had to read it a few times and I've, I'm hoping that you'll be able to understand when I explain this to you. But understanding the centimorgans is just important because the higher the number of centimorgans, the closer you are. So let's just say you're like two, 200 centimorgans related to another person. That could actually be that like you're removed, like second cousins or third cousins or, you know, five, you know, three times removed, whatever, which means that you don't probably know this person. This person 
and you are only related genetically because you have the same great great grandparents or great 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 grandparents. There's half siblings in there as well. There's going to be halves. Steps, not so much because there's no DNA, <laughs> right? But half, half siblings will come into play. So we're just going to put that on the side for now. So that was in early 2019, and that's in Douglas County in Colorado, and that's at the Sheriff's Department. April 1st, 2019, step Billy Jensen and Paul Holes onto the podcast scene, and they have their first episode of The Murder Squad. And of course, we all love them. We sing their praises. And one of the first things that they say in their first episode, please opt in to GEDmatch so we can solve some more crimes here. One of their listeners, Jesse, her name is Jesse Still, she says, you know what? I'm going to do it. I already have my DNA up on one uh, website. I'm just going to take my profile and I'm going to upload it to GEDmatch and maybe something will come of it. Maybe I can help a family. When police uploaded the suspect's profile into GEDmatch, they actually didn't get any immediate family members. So they didn't get like a high centimorgan count. Remember, those are the people that have uploaded their their information into GEDmatch recently. So we're not talking like Ancestry.com and you're just linked because you know you're linked, right? These are strictly science-proven relatives. I, Rachel, I have an adopted brother. I have him linked on my Ancestry.com, even though I know that we're not genetically related. But that's not how GEDmatch works. GEDmatch only works based on the science. So you're not thinking about the relationships that the people in GEDmatch have. You're thinking about only the the type of blood that they have, right? The type of DNA that they have. Jensen and someone over, you know, a researcher that she's working with over at Parabon, they are able to get some hits on these Centimorgan hits, but they're extended relatives. And so she contacts the two that actually close, most closely re, uh, relate to the suspect. Those numbers are like in like, I think it's like 240 Centimorgans. 210 centimorgans, 200. Apparently not that much. It's definitely not like a, a, a close sibling or even a first cousin, but it is something. They contact those two people and those two people give Jensen and the researcher their you know access to their family trees and their DNA profiles to see if they can get any more hits to get closer to, you know, we, we want the centimorgan rate to go up as, as we move on to the next person in line when it comes to this family tree. They did find that the, there was a common ancestor for this suspect and these two closely matched people. So when I talk about the family members of these suspects, I definitely want to keep their information private. And I really didn't get a lot of information from the arrest record because um, Jensen actually just only used uh, first and last initials. But for me to understand, I it does help me to use go by first names. So I'm just going to go by first name. Um, I'm going to make up a first name. I don't know if it's real or not, but I'm going to make up a first name and I'm going to use the last initial. It'll just help us you know, better understand. So what they did is they actually found a common ancestor between these two Centimorgan hits at GenMatch and the suspect. And her name was Mary T. We come to find out that she's probably like a great-great-grandmother or great-great-great-grandmother. And she was married to James E. in her first marriage, and she had two kids with him. And then James had died, and she later married Clyde. We'll call him Clyde L. And then she had, quote, several more children with him. And based on the research, Parabon believed that the suspect was a direct descendant of Jane. Okay, so we have Mary T as the ultimate, like kind of like the matriarch at the top of the tree, the family tree. But then Jane is her her first daughter and her first marriage. And they believe that Jane, because right now, once we're up at the top and we had that common ancestor, we know that that 
family tree is going to branch off, right? Mary sees going to have kids going through her first son and all of his descendants. And then we've got through her first daughter, Jane, and all of her descendants. And then, you know, she marries this guy, Clyde, and and he and has several more children with him. So each each child is going to have more people, you know, th- down their tree branch, so to speak, right? So they got to figure out what branch of Mary's tree is this guy part of? Is he part of Jane's? Is he a part of, you know, Jane's brother? Or what What about the other half, the half siblings? We're going to find out. Don't worry. <laughs> so we're now we're going to focus on Jane. So we're going to say that Jane is like the highest toward the top of the Jane. Jane is now like the top of the family tree that we're trying to we're trying to come down this family tree, right? Jane has four sons. She had two separate marriages. The first two sons, not the first two, but two two of them were ruled out because they were too young in 1980 to have actually killed Helene. They were only 10 and 11 years old. This makes me think that, you know, th- these are the two second sons because if this guy actually was Jane's son, then he would have been older than, and he, and we know that he would have been older than 10 or 11. I think that these two kids, these two sons here were probably from, from Jane's second marriage. They were also able to identify a third son of Jane's and they found out that he did live in Colorado in 1980 and the police were able to get his discarded DNA, you know, just like you see on, you know, TV shows, you know, you just kind of stake the person out and wait for them to drop something in the garbage. And they did, but it wasn't a match to the guy. So when they do that, of course, they need it to be a c- complete match because that's got to be the actual the actual suspect that you're looking at, the person that actually did it. So in this case, Jensen and her team was at a dead end. I do wonder, though, if this is where Jesse fits into the story because we don't find for sure. Listen to her interview with um, Jensen and Holes on the Murder Squad. I believe it was the Winter Distraction episode. Listen to it. It's really interesting. I did not see... Jesse still, I did not see her, the initials JS on the arrest warrant, but it's still very important because they were able to, you know, she was still a hit. She was still contacted by the county, the county sheriff's department. The Metro Denver Crime Stoppers Unit, they actually agreed to help fund research at a local uh, forensic genealogy company in Colorado. It's called United Data Connect. So they do the same thing that Parabon does, but they're just a, more of a local company. So the, the crime stoppers over in Denver actually, you know, agreed to help fund this research. It was great. And Jensen hooked up with, the, with researcher Joan Hanlon that she mentions in the arrest warrant. And what they're thinking is when they have to, you know, they have to stop and reset themselves on this, on this, uh, this research journey. And they, you know, they're not sure, like, did that guy that they just tested, did he not match the suspect because the guy wasn't, the guy that they tested wasn't uh, related to Jane? Or is it possible that our suspect's not related to Jane? Because remember, Jane's got a brother or a sister from you know, Mary's first marriage. And then remember, Mary married Clyde and had, quote unquote, several more kids. So we don't really know for sure if if Jane is the person that we're that we're trying to go down, if it's going to be if it's going to pan out with her, if it's going to be somebody else, you know, that Mary's gave birth to. They did try another another branch of the family tree. They did stick with the stop with the top uh, Scentsy Morgan hit from Jed Match. That, you know, in that 200 range, it was like 240, it was the top number. But they added a lower matching person to the mix this time to see if they could come up with something else, like to, to zero in on that on that branch. Was it Jane or was it somewhere, someone else on, under Mary, like one of Jane's siblings? So they go up the family tree and they got to a different ancestor. 
And then they checked those people on the branch, but there were no hits. It was almost like the sensing organs just kept getting slower, smaller and sm- smaller, I imagine. So Jensen and her researcher, you know, Hanlon, they say, all right, we're just going to give up on the on the 240 sensing organ. We're just going to we're going to go with the next with the number two hit. And that's the it, I think it was like two two ten two eleven or something like that. They're not talking about Mary and her daughter right now. They're just back to they don't they don't expect it to be. They don't assume it to be. They're just going back to the data that they get from GEDmatch. Jensen is actually able to get in touch with this number two hit, and she she actually lets Jensen like get into her ancestry.com account. They give the, they give him another DNA matches second relative who Jensen and her team also contact. And it's just crazy. I can't imagine getting these types of phone calls or these types of emails. Like I thanks for putting your information on GEDmatch and I'm calling from the county sheriff's department on a cold case from 1980. Like, could you imagine that? It's it's exciting, though, I'm sure, and it's rewarding, just like I'm sure Jesse went through, right? Anyone, that because that's part of what, for us in this community, especially in the true crime community, that's kind of what we want, right? We want, if, we, if we're not looking for our own people, for our own family that might be long and lost or whatever, we're looking to help solve some mysteries. Now we've got the number two hit, who forwards their information, who gives Jensen, you know, her information on Ancestry.com. Jensen finds two more people. Can we, you know, take a look at your DNA as well to see if we can get closer? We want those Senti Morgan numbers to go up, right? They said, yes, absolutely. Here you go. Here's my stuff. And they get as close as cousins, but they're not like 100%. Jensen's talking with one of these one of these cousins, and we're going to call her Carrie, Carrie M. She tells Jensen, you know what, talk to another cousin of mine. Her DNA is also on Ancestry.com, and she's done a really thorough family tree. So Jensen says, you know what, okay, I'm going to hook up with this person. And this person says, sure, you could look at my family tree that I've done on Ancestry.com. And wouldn't you know it, Jane is actually on the family tree. So we know that Jane is there. We know that Jane and Mary T, right? Because if we know Jane's there, then we know Mary's her mom. We know that she's there too. And this tree actually acknowledges that Jane had two kids first with an unknown father. And then later she got married to another guy and had three more kids. And I think that was the first suspect in Colorado, the one that they took the DNA from. So that might've been how Jesse was related to this to this suspect for that we have for Helene. Carrie also says, you know what? You could talk to my mom. Her name is Donna. Why don't you talk to her and you can get more information about, you know, the lives that they lived back then. So at this point, it's not just the, the Sensi Morgan match that we're looking at. We're also looking to see who knows who and where they lived and when. Because if if all these people turn out to be, you know, living... In Virginia, in Washington State, and nobody lived in in Colorado or had anything to do with Colorado in 1980, then we're going to be at another dead end. So Donna tells Jensen that she has two half siblings, and they're Jane and the other guy, the other child from from Mary's first marriage. We'll we'll just call him Joe. And then after James died, you know Mary got remarried to that to that guy named Clyde. And Donna is one of Clyde's children with Mary. Joe only had, Joe was Jane's brother. He only had daughters. So we clearly know that it's not his lineage. It's not his descendants that that could have done this to Helene. So we're going to stick with with Jane at this point. We're going to stick with Jane and her kids and their kids and whatever the generation, however many levels of of the family tree we need to, to get to this guy. What is going on with Jane and her family history? Like what exactly 
happen in her family, like with growing up and having the kids and, you know, and, and these two fathers of groups of kids that she's got. Well, two of them we already know aren't the guys because they were, they were 10 and 11 at the time. But what about the other two? They actually have two, she's got two sons and two sons have two arrest records. The first son, his name was William. He had been arrested in California for soliciting sex with a minor and other, quote, deviant sexual behavior. However, his DNA had actually been in CODIS in the CODIS system since 2010. And since our guy's DNA profile was submitted to CODIS in 1998, once William's profile was added to the system, then we would have gotten a hit on him if it was him. Because when we're comparing DNA in CODIS, you're looking for a specific hit. So if you don't have a specific hit, that's not who your guy is, right? So if his profile was in there, we know it's not him because they didn't get a hit on it. But the second son is a little different. So the second son, his given name at birth is Curtis. And first they found that he, he had been convicted of rape in 1975 and he served time in Arkansas. Um, and he only served three to four years in Arkansas and he was released on parole in early 1979. Now in 1981, he was arrested for violating that parole and he was sent back in prison. And then after he was released again, he ended up in Florida. Detective Shannon Jensen, she did find arrests in 1998 for domestic battery in Florida, and then again in 2001 for domestic assault. So this guy is a repeat offender in all ways, it seems, except he hasn't served any time for murder. Remember that guy Tollerton that we talked about? He committed and served time for a murder back in 1980, and then he was picked up again in 1994 for a murder just a year before. At this point, Curtis doesn't have any murders on his rap sheet, but he definitely has rapes and, you know, domestic battery or domestic violence. But if you notice, though, that he did get released on parole from that rape uh, back in 1975, he got released in early 79. And then he didn't break parole or, or, you know, get sent back to prison until 1981. He's out and doing who knows what for two years. Now, the thing is, all this time, he used aliases also. Like, his DNA was not in CODIS, because when CODIS came around, he had already been in and out of jail. Back in the 70s, they weren't collecting your DNA and storing your DNA profile for this CODIS, because CODIS didn't exist at the time. And and also, by the time Arkansas enacted the sex offender laws, that was in 1997. So, apparently, I guess his rape conviction had, quote, expired. Don't really know what that means, but for us, it means at least that he didn't have to register. So they weren't using, they didn't have that database to go off of either, the sex offender registry. Lucky for him, I guess, getting under the radar from all these reports and all these resources that law enforcement has throughout the years. By the time the end of 2019 comes around, William's DNA profile actually, you know, gets sent to Jensen because she's got to be sure that it's not him. And she sends it to Colorado Bureau of Investigations just to compare it. And they were a hit. They weren't a full hit because we didn't expect them to be, but they, but the sample does share the same Y chromosomal DNA as the suspect for Helene's murder. So which meaning which means that they somehow share the same the same DNA on their father's side. So uh, it could be, you know, William's dad is, you know, uh, related, you know, it, to the suspect in some way, or maybe the suspect's dad is related in some way, but they do share Y chromosomal DNA. And so Jensen, um, because they they do have this guy Curtis that they're looking at, she's gonna she's gonna call Florida because that's where he's living right now. He's living in Lake Butler, Florida, and she calls Florida and she says, 
can you go check on this guy? Can you see if he's, what's, what's he up to? What's he doing? You know, can you find anything else about him? And they say, yeah, okay, sure. No problem. So they find out that he's a, he's a truck driver. He just, you know, he drives a truck in state. It's not like a cross country truck driver or anything. And what else can we find out about him? Well, according to the court documents, his mother had had a nervous breakdown and his father had given him and William up to their aunt and uncle when, when he, Curtis was only a few months old. According to these court documents, while Curtis was growing up, he was actually told that his mom, Jane, was slept around a lot. And they didn't even know who his real father was. So Curtis just considered his uncle his real dad because those are the parents that he knows. He's got problems growing up. He's a runaway. Apparently he runs away all the time. And at one point he actually also stole a car when he ran away. Um, he was eventually caught and he was sent to a juvenile home in Arkansas. Um, and he eventually lived in multiple foster homes as well the rest of his younger years. Now, foster care is great as it is in theory. Unfortunately, foster parents aren't always as great as you want them to be, right? So I have a feeling, I think I did read somewhere that that some of his foster homes, if you're in multiple foster homes, that's not a good sign. That's That means you can't stay there because either you're having too much of a hard time living with this family or the family is not a good family for you. So we can't imagine that he, that everything for, for this guy, Curtis, was all sunshine and flowers and, and ice cream pops and stuff. In any case, at his parole hearing in the 1975 rape, he told the parole board that a counselor from this juvenile home that he had gone to when he was younger, that that counselor would vouch for him if he was released. And he said, quote, I have people that care about me now and I have adjusted myself, unquote. The board believed him and then they let him out. And it was under the condition, though, that the counselor would keep an eye on him. Let's just imagine where the counselor possibly lives. Yes, the counselor, lo and behold, lives in Englewood, Colorado. So at the time of Helene's murder, uh, he was actually living just five blocks from the bus stop that Helene got off at. In November 2019, Douglas County sends two detectives to this guy Curtis's house. Now he's going by James Curtis, and he's going by the last name Clanton, which is not his birth. His his birth name, birth last name was White. So he used to be Curtis White. Now he's going by James Curtis Clanton. And so Douglas County sends their two detectives to Florida to, you know, to kind of scope him out, to, you know, to track him and surveil him. And they pick up a milk container that they think that he threw in a public garbage can. And then they rush it back to Colorado and they search it. You know, they do the DNA profile on it at the, at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation Lab, but it's not a hit. But they do recognize that, you know, they didn't actually see him toss that milk container in the trash. So they're going to keep trying. And they watch him go into this bar called the Full House Lounge. Don't know if he's a regular there, but he ends up saying that he's done drinking for, quote, the morning. So at least he's a, he's a day drinker. For, we know that much, at least. So the cops, when they're there and they see that he's gone into this bar, they say, hey, we want those. We want that mug because they watch him pour beer from a bottle into a mug and then he drinks from the mug and one of the police officers that works in that in in that town um knows the owner of the bar and says to the owner hey can you you know do what you can to when he's when he's done drinking to, to hold on to that mug and the and the owner says of course absolutely we'll do it what happens is, is the mug gets mixed up with two other uh, mugs underneath um underneath the bar so they take all three mugs instead and they say get in the truck. We're driving back to Colorado. Jensen gets her hands on them. She takes them to the lab. She gets them to test them on the lab. And turns out one of the mugs is a complete match to the suspect found on Helene back in 1980. 
On December 16th, 2019, Douglas County announces that they have arrested James Curtis Clanton for the murder of Helene Prusinski back in 1980. They approach him outside of his work truck, and what happened is they asked him if they can just interview him about an identity theft scam that they're investigating back in Colorado, and he's like, okay, and he goes back to the station with them, and they turn the conversation to Helene at some point, and then he's like, I need a lawyer. You're conv- you're accusing me of something I didn't do, but that's really short-lived because he does get you know, he does get arrested because they have the DNA that that's enough to get the arrest. And they're going to they're going to take him back to Colorado. He waves extradition so they don't have to go through all that. He's like, yes, that's me. That's the guy that you want. He says, all right, fine, I'm going to tell I'm going to spill the beans, essentially. So he he starts giving a confession in the car on the way to the airport. And there is body cam footage of this. And it's really interesting. It's just like wild to listen to him talk. It's It's disgusting. But it's also really eye opening because we don't normally see this type of stuff um in the true crime community because we usually read about it afterwards we don't we don't see you know body you know body cam footage so he starts talking when they're in the car on the way to the to the airport and then afterwards when they're in the actual airplane to bring him back and what he says here is quote i knew that was going to come up and get me one day unquote don't they all know at this point right you've seen some memes out there that are about this type of stuff, the forensic genealogy where, you know, serial killers are now waiting for the day that their cousin's going to put their information on Ancestry.com or something like that, and they're going to get caught. Well, today you're reckoning, buddy. So now, according to the off- arresting officer, Lieutenant Tommy Barella, he was the one that was actually one of the ones that actually left, you know, he left Colorado, went over to Florida, pick him up and bring him back. He said that Clanton did seem remorseful and um, and that Clanton had said that he'd been praying for Helene's family over the years. Clanton actually did get married and end up having a daughter. And um, I've seen a photo, there's a, there's a wedding photo of him, you know, walking her, you know, outside the church um, for her for her own wedding. And he acknowledged that he did have many more years of freedom than he deserved. So this is what he tells police on the on, on the plane. And then later on, this is part of his confession. So I'm just going to quote because this is just really disgusting to me. But I'm just going to I'm just going to you know use, you know, use his words instead. Clanton says, quote, I told her I had a knife. And she says, I see it. And I said, well, let's go. And she said, OK, I'll go. She wasn't going to fight. She asked me what I was doing, and I told her I was kidnapping her for money. And she said, well, my parents don't have any money. And she said stuff like that. And I didn't tell her what I was really going to do until we got into that woodshed, unquote. That's how he got her out of the bus, away from the bus stop. And then he gets her to an abandoned woodshed, probably somewhere between the bus stop and where she was later found. Um, And he rapes her. And then once they get to the spot where he's going to, like, I guess either do more horrific things to her or where he's just going to leave her. He says, quote, we got out of the vehicle and walked through the field. We crossed the fence and walked in through the field. And I told her to get down on her knees. And I said, you're going to have to walk home from here. So don't get up until after I leave. And then as has happened with me on several occasions, for some reason or another, I just kind of stepped out of myself and watched myself do that, unquote. And what he means there is that, you know, that he's he's stabbing her. I don't like how he says on several occasions, because this guy, this is the only murder that this guy has been convicted of, charged or convicted of. And what really bothers me about this confession is this is part of what he's saying to the to, you know, to the detectives on the plane coming back from, you know, color coming back from Florida. 
And he says on several occasions, as has happened with me on several occasions, for some reason or another, I just step out of myself and watch myself do that. So while he's had other other arrests for violent offenses for the rape back in 75, and then also for domestic battery and domestic assault, what other times has he stepped out of himself and watched himself stab someone? Maybe he just means beating someone. Maybe that is what that is. I don't know. But, and this is just, you know, conjecture. This is just me thinking out loud. But that that part where he says several occasions has happened with me on several occasions for some reason or another, that, that really just kind of disgusts me. This is what he says about his childhood. He says, quote, when I was eight, I started with insects, of course, and putting them in red ant piles. Then I went up to amphibians and other small animals. And when I was eight, I hung a cat in a tree and I beat it to death with a tree limb. I couldn't understand why a kid would do that. A kid could do that, could get that kind of rage. That rage has always stayed with me. I mean, it's, I think every time that something hurts me that bad and I can't deal with it, I learned anger covers up pain. That's pretty much the basis of everything I've ever done. I'm just mad all the time, unquote. Where did the where did the hatred come from? Where did the rage come from? The only thing we can think of is possibly because of his mother. You know, he was told that she had a nervous breakdown, and then that supposedly they don't even know for sure that his dad is was his dad was his dad. So it's possible that you know because you know his mom had slept around. You know that that even the dad isn't his dad, but then he did stay with his dad's brother and and sister in law, and that's how you know he started out his life. It must be some kind of mommy issue thing, I guess. Who knows what the parents, you know, what the aunt and uncle who were serving as his parents, how they talked about their family makeup and where James slash Curtis and his brother William came from. I don't think he's given any interviews in regards to that, but this is what this is part of his confession. And it wasn't obvious at first if um, James Clanton was going to plead not guilty or guilty, but then right before his first court date in Colorado, and I think it was January of 2020, he did say, um, he did strike a deal. Um, I guess, I'm not exactly sure what the parameters were, but he did say that he would, you know, he would plead guilty. And, um, and he knew that life without parole was on the table. And then of course, COVID hit. And so they had to put off like every, every other court and every other county and every other state in the United States and across the world, they did put his uh, sentencing hearing on, you know, on hold and on pause. So he's in jail the whole time up until his court date. He was sentenced to life without parole July 1st of 2020. And this everything is just through Zoom or through the web. You know, it was all teleconferences. And then we did have some victim statements that were given. Janet um, was there. Um, Kim, her friend was there. Also, Kitsy was there. This is what uh, Janet says, um, Janet's, you know, has been since retired and she's living in Connecticut still. And this is what she said um, at the sentencing. She said, to the day that my dad died, he was a protective father and he felt guilt, very deep guilt for letting Helene go off to her internship. And over the years, we would talk about the good times that we had with her proud moments and her many accomplishments, the cute, the funny things that we would do her beautiful smile, her kind nature. But behind all those cherished memories, there was the sadness, the emptiness, and the anger that Helene never got the chance to live out her dream, her future, unquote. When the murder squad, I just wanted to kind of come back about the Jesse Still information that we talked about earlier with the murder squad. They did her, inter- their, uh, Jensen and Holes did interview her back on their episode 
on January 13th of 2020. This was right after, you know, just a month after the arrest was announced. And um, she found out that she did, that she does share um, a great, great, great grandparent with Clanton. Um, they do believe that this is the first case that um, that's what they're saying in that episode. You should go listen to it. It's great because they do interview her and the episode, I think the interview is like a half an hour. And then Jensen and Holes, they, they you know, they kind of go over the, the broad scope of the case itself. Um, they do believe and they do declare that this is the first case that is solved by somebody that was listening to their podcast. So keep in mind, um, you know, Jensen and Holes Murder Squad actually, uh, um, you know, premiered in April of 2019. And part of that was them asking, you know, their listeners to upload their information into GEDmatch. And Jesse actually had already had her DNA done. So it's not like she had to send send it out and then wait for it to come back. She actually was able to just, you know, go right to GEDmatch, get a using, you know, username and login and upload it right away. And she actually first heard um, from the Douglas County Sheriff's Department. I think she said it was in June. So just keep in mind, though, that her initials are not on the ultimate chart from the arrest warrant. She's she might not be the you know on the direct line with Jane that uh, James Curtis Clanton was was on, but she definitely did play a key part. We're not going to take anything away from Jesse because just because you're not the direct you know in in part of like the, the the direct tree branch of that family tree doesn't mean that you're not helping because anytime we get a hit that's a help because we know that the science is working, we know that the research is working, and we're just one step closer to getting that particular case solved. So I'm just going to close today with um, a quote from Janet's Facebook from after the arrest was made. Clanton is put away. He's serving life without parole. He's never getting out. But this is what Janet says on her Facebook page. She says, quote, I want people to know what a special person Helene was. My sister was my best friend. She was a loving daughter, sister, aunt, and friend. Helene was on track to do great things she had a bright future ahead of her. There has not been a day that goes by that we haven't missed her. The detectives and everyone else who helped make this day happen are my heroes. I look forward to justice being served, unquote. And that is the resolution of the murder of Helene Prusinski. So I just want to thank you again for listening today and hopefully you come back next time on a new episode for a new case. And just like they say on the murder squad, just, you know, consider, especially if you're, if your, you know, DNA has been analyzed and, you know, you've got it up in ancestry.com or 23andMe, if you've, if you've got it up there already, just consider uploading it to GEDmatch and allowing your report to be accessed by law enforcement. We can get some more crime solved. We can get some more people identified through the DNA Doe Project. I think it's really important. And that's, that's ultimately the goal of this podcast is to share the stories so we can, you know, get some more crime solved and get some more people identified. We need resolution and, you know, the victims of these, especially of these violent crimes, they need, they need justice. Their families need justice. So thank you for listening to this first episode. Join me next week when we dive into another case. I'm not sure if it's going to be a solved murder or, or maybe we'll do, you know, we'll go back and forth with, um, you know, unidentified remains that have been identified and maybe there was a crime there maybe there wasn't we don't know but at least the family will get closure in in some kind of way you can follow me on uh, facebook and instagram at the ties that find and then also on my website ties that find.com looking forward to sharing you with you all these stories and i will just see you and talk to you another day